Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG. Brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with Bruce Simpson. Bruce is an advisor on ESG and purpose, helping companies deliver a positive societal impact and long-term shareholder benefits through their core business. Bruce is a senior advisor at McKinsey & Company, a global management consulting firm where he has worked for 35 years. Previously was the managing partner of McKinsey's Canadian office for eight years, convened on the firm's global operations practice for eight years, and served 12 years on McKinsey's global board. You also led McKinsey's global practice on purpose and ESG, a key topic we're going to talk about today. Currently, you're a senior advisor at Blackstone, world's largest alternative asset manager, and you're advising, you're a senior manager to two fast-growing, truly distinctive ESG companies, Tomorrow IO and Quantify, which I'm really interested in. You earned a bachelor's of law and a master's of laws in international law legal studies from the University of Cambridge. You also earned a master of international studies from Louder Institute at the University of Pennsylvania and an MBA, International Global Studies from the Wharton School. Bruce, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thank you, Gary. Yeah. So tell us about how you arrived at this career, or may I say, a calling? It was definitely a calling. My parents were Arctic explorers, and so much of my childhood was spent in the Arctic, canoeing in the fjords in front of the icebergs, living with indigenous peoples up there. And that gave me a real love for the wilderness, as well as a sensitivity to, to its fragility. Many places we can get to with our kayaks now are not on the map because they were under 100 feet of ice just a few decades ago. And you can see this happening. There are glaciers in Greenland moving three feet every hour, such as the speed at which the central ice cap is melting. That gave me a love for ESG. But when I was at university, there wasn't actually much happening. I came out of Cambridge in 83, couldn't get a job in what would have been described the ESG space back in the 80s. And I kind of fell backwards then into McKinsey, but with the determination not to serve clients in a traditional way, focusing on their on their economic performance, but always to bring in this focus on you know broadening the aperture, finding ways for companies not just to deliver for shareholders, but also broader stakeholders. And quickly discovered that individuals, when they realized that their, you know, what they would see as mundane day jobs can actually have a positive impact on the planet if they change, for example, some of the materials they use or kind of an impact on people because products can actually serve the underserved communities, for example, in the financial services sector, then that adds meaning and purpose, not just to those communities, but to the people delivering those products and services. One of the biggest challenges in the business world today is that 70% of the workforce is not actively engaged. They don't actually care very much about their job. 
And as a result, they bring to work discipline, rigor, and obedience, but they leave at home initiative, creativity, thinking out of the box. And this purpose and ESG focus enables individuals, if they can link their individual purpose to what the company's doing and the company's brands, then all of a sudden, they're four times more likely to be engaged. So that was a big discovery for me. And in the latter part of my McKinsey career, ESG became a thing. And with some colleagues, we were able then to create this practice dedicated to helping companies identify great ways in which they can leverage their strengths for the benefit of the planet and its people, and also deliver for shareholders. Companies that don't make money quickly become extinct. And so it is about finding a win-win, but you know, my insight, if you like, is that companies that do link their strengths to a societal need and deliver on a societal need, they will find customers that will pay for new products and services. And, and as a result, there can be a win-win. If you like, I focused on Aristotle, who gave advice, which was where your strengths overlap with society's needs, there lies your vocation. So it's all about helping companies identify what are those strengths and then delivering against them to define their contribution and then do great things for their shareholders and stakeholders. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, it certainly has. You were before your time and now you're living in it in in the explosion of it. I was also, I mean, in simple terms, I was an athlete too in in my teens, Mm -hmm. and I shifted from athlete to activist, wanting to be the best in the world and on the podium for a day, to being the best for the world every day, Yep, which is eminently more doable. Any of us can be the best for the world every day. And then more recently, as I'm now focusing on coaching and mentoring senior management teams, it's shifted to bringing great love to small things in the service of others, mm-hmm. which again, even little old me, I can't always do great things, right? but we can all bring great love to small things in the service of others. And I think oh, that's, uh, that's, that's my purpose thing. Yeah. Being in the service of others, you either have it or you don't. I imagine you can find it. I imagine you can have an epiphany, but you know, it's, it's, you're kind of either wired for that or you're not. And I have found for us, and I think, Rocket and I really share this of being in service for others and in our business. So I'm really glad to hear that. So question here, why is stakeholder capitalism, purpose, and ESG increasingly important? But what forces drive this? I know we just touched on it slightly, but I want to know about the forces that drive this. There are several forces that are underneath this. Now, back in the 70s, it was all about shareholder capitalism. Life was simpler back then. Milton Friedman famously said, the business of business is business, but they should operate in an environment which the government regulates. Now, more recently, of course, we added a different word before the word capitalism. It's not shareholder capitalism, it's inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism or woke capitalism, if you're a cynic. So why is that happening? Well, it's happening because there are a number of crises that we have not been able to solve with the existing shareholder capitalist model. These governments, which a shareholder capitalism model relies on to regulate, just can't get these crises solved. The environmental crisis, for one, we all talk about net zero by 2050, but we have to get there, we have to get halfway there by 2030. Regulation isn't happening fast enough, and already COP26, which is in my hometown in Glasgow in Scotland, Company targets are now ahead of government targets. 
And that's great because people are saying, well, wait a minute, if governments aren't getting it done, maybe companies can, and they're putting their, their faith in companies. Similarly, there's a social crisis which shareholder capitalism miserably failed to solve. The old shareholder model only made a few people rich. Frontline wages in America have not gone up in real terms in 40 years. 40 years. And the share actually of revenue going back to pay the labor pool has actually gone down in America 15% in the last uh, uh, 15 years. Black families have a tenth of the wealth of white families. Only 50% of workers in the Russell 1000 can actually afford to pay for a family of three, even with both parents working. Such is the poverty we have at amongst the real people doing the real jobs. There's a social crisis. And to solve that social crisis, companies that are actually paying or not paying enough to the front line need to step up. And then there's a governance crisis. When you have the US government, Congress is a less than 20% approval rating. People are looking at America which is close to becoming a failed democracy where there's so much polarization, we can't get much done. Yep. Thank goodness Biden managed to get his bill through recently on the environment, but that was a close shave, of course. So for these reasons, people are saying, look, it's urgent to solve these crises. We can't expect governments to do it all. They also have their hands full with COVID. And now 87% of people believe that companies their expectation of companies is the same level as governments in terms of delivering for society. They've simply shifted their focus to companies. In addition to that, labor markets are tightening. We've never seen so many unfilled positions in America. That's demographics that's actually affecting that to attract workers to fill some of those jobs. You'd better be offering those workers more meaningful employment, more pay, more benefits. So that's actually driving companies to step up. And then, of course, there's Generation Z, Generation Z, and now a quarter of the workforce. This is a generation which, interestingly, isn't as involved in traditional societal activities, the Boy Scouts, mm -hmm. the Girl Church. They don't do community stuff outside of school, but they still have aspirations, which they then bring to their employer, and they expect their employer to deliver societal benefits and meaning and purpose at work. They'll take a pay cut to work for a company which really is seen to have a strong societal meaning and purpose. And they're you know, driving some of that pull, some of that demand in companies also to step up in this uh, space of, of ESG. Now famously, the business round table, it's what 200 CEOs or so yeah. in 2019, mm -hmm. they made that statement that we are yes. now going to operate also for the broader stakeholders and that's terrific. And I think more recently, what's reinforcing all this Two is we have a number of outlier companies showing you can do this without leaving shareholders at the altar. Yeah. Right. If you can push your returns timeline out to six to seven years, you will make more money from this type of approach, stakeholder capitalism approach, than you can from the more narrow shareholder approach. Yeah. Well, there has to be a huge monumental shift in the financial markets to reward that. Hopefully we can get there. There's also a lot of activism and tension on, on several fronts. What are your thoughts on that? Yes, lots of activism. So you have worker activism, which is driven by worker scarcity. They have more power now to negotiate higher wages. They will leave their job if they aren't earning a living wage. We've never seen, in fact, so many people quit their jobs since records were kept as they are doing over the last few months. And that's largely about pay. On the other hand, 
companies which pay a living wage will have 30% less attrition. There's a business case for increasing frontline pay. But you see worker activism pushing for you know, better benefits, better pay, better training and development, and so on. We're also seeing increased activism amongst consumers. Consumers that are now able to use the, the internet has democratized the ability of people to really see whether companies are living up to their commitments on the environmental side. It's not hard now to check whether what a company actually says in its statements is what the company does through its products and its marketing. And that's helped consumers. 44% of consumers are now boycotting a product, not because it doesn't work, but because the brand, the social stance or the societal stance of that brand doesn't fit their personal stance. And they're boycotting a product and they're using social media to encourage others to boycott the product too. We're also seeing activism from CEOs. CEOs are now expected by their workers to take a stand on societal topics. And we've seen that. Disney, for example, in Florida, taking a stand against the don't say gay legislation, which got the the CEO in all sorts of trouble with the local legislature in in Florida. But there was pressure from employees to step up and to, to take a stand. So we're seeing that too. Ben and Jerry's ice cream, famously, oh, famous. I think so, have famous. been arrested several times. Yeah. Part of what they do, and they have a very loyal following. And so we're seeing CEO activism that is creating tension. It is now part of the job. They just need to, to pick carefully, of course, topics to take a stand on. Which, of course, if they're closer to what the company actually does, that's a bit easier. And if they have the full backing of their employees, then of course that's strong too. And then there's also activism from regulators, the SEC taking on Goldman Sachs just a couple of weeks ago, BNY mm-hmm. Mellon, Deutsche Bank in, yep. in Europe for misrepresenting ESG funds or the companies that are in that fund and how they, they actually calibrate whether they really are ESG friendly companies. So more regulatory activism. And then, and then finally, I would say this is you know, interesting too, investors, investors have shifted their view from purpose in ESG being just about risk, reducing risk by, for example, reducing your your carbon footprint or more disclosure, but they're now seeing it as a value creation. And so they are being more activist with, for example, proxy resolutions for board members, management team, and so on, because they can see that if companies move in this direction of ESG and stakeholder capitalism, they will actually be more successful, they'll have lower risk, And so they're also pushing in the right direction. Yeah. I'd love to know from the get-go, when we talk to corporations, do they see this as a risk mitigation need or is it a value creation opportunity? Where is it in their heart and soul as a a human being? Because corporations are only led by human beings. So what's their point of view on that? Right. And it usually cuts away the people who are doing it with purpose, with focus, and really making that difference from the people who are just sort of like slapping a purpose up on the wall and some values, and that's the extent of the exercise. Look, it's 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 a great question. I did a, a great series of conversations with CEOs with Fortune Magazine. It was um, last year, I think, and we talked to, I think, 50 or so CEOs who said they're actually spending 50% of their time on this topic. <laughs> wow. So this, is a, this is absolutely squarely now something they're spending tons of time on. And what they shared, they shared a number of things, but one was 
where they feel that the purpose or the stance of the company is something that really fits with their personal psyche, then they can defend it to the hilt. They can feel congruent. That increases trust. People will see, people will see through a veneer which is not real, but where the purpose is real, then it's because the personal stance, the personal beliefs of the CEOs and the top team actually match the stance that they're taking externally. And where they have made that stance, that has often led to gutsy decisions where a company stops doing something. For example, CVS Health stops selling tobacco. Dick's Sporting Goods stops selling types of, of weapons. IKEA reinvesting a lot in in recycling, Lego shifting from plastics into bricks, Lego bricks into using a material made from sugarcane so it can be recycled and reused. So we see companies taking a stance which is costly in the short term, but which then pays out because customers are more loyal to them. But it does often require that what they say be backed up with what I call a stop do. They're going to stop doing right, something right. direct hit the bottom line or do something that costs more in the short term, mm-hmm. pays out over a longer period. PayPal and IKEA, good examples. They increased frontline pay 17, 20% wow. because they realized that their frontline workers, after paying for food and rent, only had 4% of disposable income left. This is the case of, of PayPal. The CEO said that's not good enough. So they increased frontline pay, they invested in training, they made their their employees shareholders. That was an immediate hit to the bottom line. However, within about, I think, eight months or so, it paid for itself because they had lower attrition and higher loyalty. Yeah, I bet. But it paid out. And this is where it's the actions need to match the words. And when the actions do, and when the actions cost something in the short term, then companies get full credit as they should do. I want to I want to build on that. But first, I want to say, I've seen and worked with CEOs who've had an epiphany. One CEO of a large consulting firm we worked with, he at one point, he said, Oh, we have many, many purposes. And then he finally got the, the idea, well, we have one real main purpose here. And I've seen how leaders can have these kind of epiphanies to kind of rethink and look at that from from a new point of view. But you talk about it starts with discovery or rediscovering a company's purpose. How do you work with companies yeah. to help them rediscover or redefine or find their purpose? Every company I've ever known had a societal purpose at yeah. inception. Right. They weren't Founder. created to make money, they were created to solve a problem, uh, to fill a gap to find a product that somebody wanted that was fulfilling a societal need. However, for many companies, that was years, perhaps decades ago. Right. And now they've sort of lost the plot or they're looking to rediscover it. So the first step for me is look back at your, quote, glorious past. What were you at the beginning? What was the founder's intent? What were you doing with your first products and services? What was that core backbone that you built back then? Also talk to your employees. What gets people jazzed to come to work? When people are excited to be at work, what is it that they're doing? What are the products and services that most excite them? It's to sort of modernize that purpose in today's context and today's world. So there's a, there's a first step, explore their past, explore their world, 
talk to stakeholders inside the company and outside. What do customers think about? What do the suppliers think about are the company's, is the company's purpose and the core strengths underneath it? Back to Aristotle, where do our strengths that we have then overlap with society's needs? So they would take that purpose as defined through those, through that stakeholder engagement and then have a good look at the world today. What does the world actually need? What are our competitors doing? Is there a strength that we have that can really deliver a product which is a benefit for for customers? And then define new products and services around that purpose, which then needs to be embedded into what the company does. Now, embedded, what that means is building that purpose statement into a subset of chosen ESG parameters, right? ESG brings measurements and particular buckets they can focus on. Purpose without ESG measurement and targets is just fluff. It doesn't anchor in the business. ESG without purpose, however, isn't isn't focused. It's just a laundry list of possibilities. Purpose and ESG have to be married. The clear purpose statement, which is then cascaded into the few material ESG areas that matter, which is then built in into the company's products, its strategy, its culture, its processes. And then the company is off to the races. Let me give you an example. PayPal, back to PayPal again. So PayPal- They're a good uh, example. Great example. They have an amazing strength in they are up close and personal with the balance sheet needs and the balance sheet fragility of small and medium enterprises in multiple parts of America. They know how indebted folks are. They know what their needs are. And they're able to use that knowledge, maybe like proprietary knowledge, to be able to then develop products and services Mm. which help those SMEs and people who don't have a great deal of means provide access to financial services products. So they focus on that. Now, what they also did, though, was identify a vulnerability, which every company has a strength, but also a vulnerability that they have to tackle. Their vulnerability was as they're focusing on these small medium enterprises and people who have less means who are customers, they said, well, wait a minute, what about our own employees? Are we taking care of them? Hmm. And that's when he did this economic fragility assessment to understand what's a net disposable income our own people have after paying food and rent. And they realized, well, wait a minute, we better, first of all, increase pay, take care of our own people. That then provides credibility to go out and sell more of these financial services products externally, which has been, of course, very successful for them. So that's a good example of um, on this journey, there is always a vulnerability identified, which has to be tackled before a company talks too much externally about the strengths and the, and the purpose, because otherwise it just looks like greenwashing. A petroleum company, nobody cares what they're doing on the S dimension of ESG until they talk about a net zero commitment or carbon emissions reduction. Similarly, Lego, we mentioned already, Lego had a vulnerability in the plastics, in the bricks that they use. Mm -hmm. So they changed that to the sugarcane derivative while then building up a strength through amazing customer relationships and a purpose, which is building creativity through play. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot about corporate purpose. You sort of touched on this. How do you unlock purpose on a on an individual level? Because people have to connect with this purpose or core beliefs that a corporation has. Famously, Unilever has talked a lot about this. Unilever 
is all about sustainable living and they develop products and services and, and a real mission behind that. But one of their lessons on their journey was before employees could talk much or contribute much to the corporate purpose, they had to go through a personal journey to discover their own individual purpose. Mm. And they did thousands of what's Love called that. DYP, wow. develop your purpose workshops for, the, for people to do that. And there, that's one insight. Another insight is that one's purpose shifts through time in our own lives. I mentioned, you know, my purpose shifted from athlete wanting to be the best in the world and on the podium for a day mm -hmm. to activist, right. to activist being the best for the world every day and now bringing great love to small things in the service of others. So your purpose shifts. Are you dependent? Are you independent? Footloose and fancy free? Do you have, you know, spouse and children? Are you retired? It, it shifts through time. So you need to discover it. And you discover your purpose by going back across your life and identifying peaks and troughs. So where was it that I have felt absolutely at my best? What was I doing? Who with? Mm. What, what was I actually, or where and where was I at the time? And then looking at the troughs, those toughest moments that we have been through are usually source of greatest insights mm. uh, in terms of who we really are as people. And then, so life helps bring this out. And then, then looking, reflecting on those peaks and troughs, really taking time to reflect. This requires solitude and silence. You can then draw out a purpose statement for yourself, test it on people who know you well, and then, of course, start to live it. Important, though, to understand purpose is not a goal. It's not about a hill you want to climb, a next job or a role. Purpose is the way you play any role. It's something Any that we role. bring to whatever we're doing. And for me, for example, if I translate bringing great love to small things in the service of others, a piece of that is simply being present with individuals mm -hmm. that life might bring to me during the day, a guy in the metro, a receptionist at the office, a homeless person on the street. Is there a way where your interaction with that person present. A great French philosopher, Simone Veil, described attention as the highest form of generosity. Yes. We've lost a lot of attention to each other during COVID. So can we be present with individuals that life brings to us in such a way that that leaves a positive trace behind in that interaction, which means the next interaction they have with somebody else might be a little different, a little more positive. And then we unleash a ripple, which becomes a wave, which can create you know something positive across the planet. Right. Little things, generosity, presence, attention, listening, that's all about, I think, living one's, one's purpose. And that, of course, you can bring to any particular role. So it's a way we live. It's not a destination we're trying to get to. Yeah. And it makes me think about the leadership qualities that really are needed now, how they differ maybe from when short-termism was king and compared to the long-termism and even before that, you know, where it was just the C-suite was way above and hierarchy, where it's all flattened out so much, it needs to continue to flatten out. That's when the, the whole enterprise really thrives now. Yes. Rocket, and, I totally agree with you. And there's maths behind that, what you just said. So, for example, there's a great professor called George Seraphim up at Harvard who's yes. looked at this. And one of the insights he's developed is that where the top team of a company 
feels there's a strong purpose and they're motivated by that purpose and it's clear to them, that's fine. But there's no correlation between that and delivering superior returns. Where, that's called purpose camaraderie. Where, however, there's purpose clarity, which for him is defined as when middle management and lower levels of management can actually use that corporate purpose statement and make decisions, trade-offs in a different way in their day job, in part of the operating core of the company, that's when purpose, if it's that clear and specific and meaningful, actually starts to, to generate shareholder returns. And he looked at companies over a, a long period and showed that companies that have purpose clarity, where the, where the middleman and frontline gets it, are there's a huge correlation between them getting the purpose and shareholder benefits. There's also some interesting McKinsey maths behind this, which shows that 85% of top management get their purpose from work. 85% of the frontline don't. So they're just showing up. And yeah. as I mentioned yeah. before, the 70% of the workforce are not engaged. So, so there's a bridge to build. Is it possible that we can find ways to help the lower levels of the company understand their individual purpose, bring that to work? Can we then cascade Sorry, uh, can we flatten the hierarchy rocket, as you mentioned, take out decision making levels, perhaps delegate more so that people at lower levels can actually make decisions on things. That's part of them feeling more autonomy. It's mm -hmm. part of them also feeling more purposeful. And that does then generate a higher return. So it's all about how people who are closest to the customer in lower levels of the company operate and whether they feel purpose. That's where the real meat is here. Yeah, for sure. And we, having been in business for 38 years in our firm, Gary and I have worked together about 36 of those 38. We have, we've sort of, we saw the transition of branding. We st started our firm in, in reports and we were really realizing that when the internet came and really changed the role of an annual report, where it became more of a complacent, you know, compliance document rather than the, the most important narrative for a company uh, annually. We saw that it was the involvement of corporate identity being, you know, grids and colors and, and sort of a look and feel to this evolvement of a platform where a corporation is more human, it has values, it has personality, it has a voice, it doesn't just have colors and, and a grid. It's, it's got a purpose. It's got a purpose. And so our bet, you know, after uh, end reports became compliance documents, we were realizing that we had been writing corporate platforms all along and obviously pivoted and, and built our business more in strategy and in, in writing. And now with ESG reporting, you know, it's sort of coming full circle. And I do feel that at some point it will merge the financial reporting and the non-financial reporting. One of the differences in the work that we try to do is we try to emphasize as you said, without having, if you if you just report on your ESG, on what's material for your business, it's not focused. But when we bring in what the corporate brand is really about, 
its purpose, its mission. It's, you know, reflecting the things that obviously the ESG agenda reflects the, the values of the company. And, and those things we've always felt and tried to do for our clients, bring that into the equation because it's really when you have that fusion, which you're, you're saying in purpose yeah. just with ESG. It's all holding it to a whole completely different standard where it's not just a surface thing anymore. Even in leadership, can't surfacely just yeah. say things. They have to walk the walk. Yeah. Let me kind of flip this because you recently wrote about the six common pitfalls with purpose and ESG. And I kind of want to know what companies what you see what companies get wrong in this space well i think one of them is just what rocket was talking about it's focusing too much on a sustainability report which happens alongside the business yes rather than building esg into the core business right that that's the right. key thing we're looking for integration and there are a number i think of errors rocket you mentioned a, a style thing too. Company, you know, the, today it's much more successful to think of CEOs as enrolling and engaging their employees, unleashing, unlocking potential in the organization, as opposed to directing and controlling. That's what we need to be doing. And, and that requires a style with more vulnerability, for example, more asking, more questioning, more nudging from behind versus leading from the front so we can unlock the potential in the workforce. That's a, a big deal as far as the style of management, I think, is concerned. Purpose isn't something that can be directed from the top. Change trickles down. Revolutions come from the bottom. And this really is a revolution we're talking about here. And that requires, therefore, that it be a lot more bottom up than top down. Now, a number of errors. So one, branding. We've talked about branding. And I do think a lot of companies will treat purpose as a PR or a branding exercise alone. A marketing Rather than message. thinking of it as a business exercise, right? It's only when the purpose and that is then embedded in ESG priorities is then built into the products, the services, the strategy, the culture that companies can then deliver both for stakeholders and for shareholders. So that would be a first error is treating it as a PR exercise rather than a business exercise. Another one is leaning into strengths and talking about it externally without addressing vulnerabilities. We've mentioned before, if we, a number of investors talk about reducing the carbon footprint of new investments that they're making in their portfolio, but they're not talking about the existing carbon footprint in the current portfolio. Petroleum companies talking about paying their employees a living wage, that's great for S, but what about that net zero target? So there's always a vulnerability and companies have to look to that. Often the biggest vulnerability actually is not looking deeply enough at how their own workforce is being treated. Are they earning a living wage? Are they getting health benefits? Are we investing in their training and development? Are we really living diversity, equity, and inclusion? Those are big questions you have to answer for your own employees first because your own employees will defend you out there or not. Amazon has seen a lot of criticism from their own employees blowing the whistle on some of their, their workforce practices. Elon Musk has trumpeted that ESG is a fad when he doesn't realize 
or maybe he does, but isn't admitting that his problem is, is the S dimension of ESG. He's doing good things on the environment through Tesla motor vehicles, but the reason he was dropped from the S&P ESG index is because of poor performance on health and safety and taking care of their own workers. Yes. So you need to understand that it's not just about one dimension and your, your strength, Elon, it's also about tackling a vulnerability. And you have to get the vulnerability right and tackle that as well as talking about the strength. And I also think that it's not about it happening overnight, that it's really about building that roadmap and reporting progress and intention. Yeah. Rocket, you're right. This is the next one. It's lacking substantial short-term commitments. So back to net zero, companies talk about net zero by 2050. That's a joke. That's eight management teams down the road. <laughs> what about 2022, 2023? We need to hear about those short-term targets. One uh, criticism is they talk about this, this highfalutin long-term target, but you need to have something which is short-term that's measurable that this management team commits to doing oh, right now. So it's a big deal. There's um, cooking purpose in an internal kitchen without getting external stakeholder engagement. That's also a mistake. Companies thinking they can dream it up inside the corporate frontier or the, or the corporate sandbox without realizing that they operate in a, in a whole ecosystem where there are people outside the company who are perhaps consumers, customers, or suppliers, stakeholders who also need to provide inputs, useful input on what the company can be doing. And I think perhaps robbing Peter to pay Paul, we saw companies dialing back on their environmental commitments to dial up a little bit on their social and governance commitments during or the last couple of years with COVID and, and so on. Well, of course, it's easy to lose credibility. You have to sustain commitments on E and then add in commitments against uh, the S dimension as well. But I think the biggest, if there's one thing though to focus on, it is understanding that in 2022, taking care of your own employees first, you take care of your employees they take care of customers, that takes care of business. A great CEO called Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy, led that transformation. Yes. Perfect transformation, by the way, has said that. Similarly, the CEO of PayPal has said something similar. Taking care of your own employees. That is, by the way, according to the American people, the number one ESG dimension, most important to the American people today, is am I earning a living wage? The wow. environment comes after that. Yeah, I talk uh, about, I've, I've so, talked about people first companies for a long, yeah. long time now. And you just said what I say, quite simply, when you take care of your people, they will take care of your customers and they will take care of your business. It just starts exactly. kind of a, you know, it seems highly over, oversimplified, right? But no, it's right there. Well, yeah. And I, I have Jolie's book here, The Heart of Business. There's a lot of great nuggets in that book. Yeah. Great nuggets. It's so obvious that that's the first criteria of authenticity. I think it is obvious. I think he goes into some of the things that perhaps are less obvious, which are, I think are quite useful in terms of identifying how to make work feel purposeful to individuals. Mm -hmm. Yes, there is that link between individual purpose and what the company's doing. That, we've talked about that already. That's a big deal. But it is also about autonomy delegating decision-making. So there's more things they can make a decision on at their level of the organization. That's a big deal. It's also about being able to see a real career path. Is the company investing in my future through training mm -hmm. and skill building? It's also about 
building genuine connections at work through diversity, equity, and inclusion. So and that requires quite a bit of work. It's also about bureaucracy busting. If people are double inputting data, for example, two different databases, because they haven't joined those two things together, that's a, a real turnoff. So that's <laughs> too that companies can do just to make people feel they can be productive mm -hmm. because they have the systems and processes around them to do that. Do you think maybe 10 years from now, as people get more serious and more buttoned down on reporting and it can it becomes something that's that's clearer and not as with so many different frameworks and you know so many different people doing it different ways. Do you think that the long-termism and the payoff will also turn into CEOs having longer terms in companies? Because one of the things, you know, that just really over the last, you know, three decades has just been, it just seems like, you know, a CEO's time in a company is shorter and shorter and shorter. And how can he get in and get out and make all this money? And you expect everybody else to be taking care of your business. So several things there, Rocket, I think those are great points. So, so first of all, unfortunately, 65% of CFOs have confessed through surveys that they would veto a project that had a positive value, positive net present value that was gonna deliver for the company where that project has a cost associated that would hit into the next quarterly earnings. <laughs> Such is the tyranny of the quarterly analyst meeting over long-term capitalism. Now, McKinsey has done some good analysis which shows that companies that focus five to seven years out make more money. So there is a business case for looking further out, but it's not yet entirely the norm. And the average tenure of CEOs in America, I think is less than four years. So it doesn't quite fit. I agree with you, Rocket. It is longer in Asia. It is longer in Europe. And I think that's perhaps one of the reasons why some of the, the companies over in those geographies are more long-term thinking. Regulation also mm -hmm. uh, plays a part. But I, th I think that, that that's one thing that uh, where we will see more and more and more companies delivering for the long-term and showing how and why that's, that, that's possible, then others will follow because there's actually more money in it as well as more societal right. impact. I think other things though will be helpful too. I'm positive on the future, the metaverse, now, the metaverse is coming to a game near you. There's already 60 million users of Roblox, for example, a gaming platform, of which I think 60% are, are under 16. So this is what our kids are playing. They're playing in the metaverse. Now, the metaverse shifts us from a two-dimensional experience on the internet to an all-encompassing, all-inclusive experience in the metaverse. Hmm. And while we have struggled to communicate on the internet or through this two-dimensional communication we have today, we've struggled to communicate just what climate change actually looks and feels like. People say, wait a minute, one degree more in wherever I'm at, right. in Minnesota or in Toronto, what difference is that gonna make to me? The metaverse, I think, will be able to you know, help us understand what's it like to be in a bushfire? How about flooding in Kentucky that we've seen in the last few weeks? Incredible. Being close to an iceberg is just toppling over. Those experiences, I think, will come even more real, and that will help us communicate the need to tackle climate change. So I think that that will be helpful. What's also, I think, going to be helpful is, look, we spend a lot of time complaining about what companies are doing or not doing. We also complain about what 
governments are doing or not doing? How about us as individuals? I think that with measurability and tracing and new apps that are available to all of us, we can now measure our personal carbon footprint. I mean, did you know that a computer uses 20 times more energy during its lifetime when it's not actually being used than when it is? Because we never actually turn the things off. The same with the TV. It's, you still see that little red light on because it's still consuming energy. Turn the darn things off. Turn the lights off. Wow. Stop using plastic. Recycle where possible. Don't mm -hmm. buy as much stuff. If we can shift from being consumers of the world's resources to stewards. Yes. Then that's a shift that consumers can make. And I, think, I do think Generation Z understand that and the new measurement techniques and new solutions and new apps that are out there are helpful one more example have you heard of these of the search platform ecosia 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 it's a search engine mm -mm. just like google yeah well, you'll get the same answers as if you use google but every search you do on ecosia which is free by the way they plant two trees mm, wow and if you go to Ecosia's website, you see the number of trees planted. It's a very sophisticated operation behind the scenes. So it's a search engine delivering tree planting. Wow. What about buying Adidas products that are part of the Parley recycling campaign? That's a whole line of Adidas running shoes, tennis shoes, made from recycled plastic from the Maldives. That's pretty cool. Yep. And I think, so we'll be able to inform ourselves more in the future of decisions that we can make and then move our individual carbon footprint in the right direction. I think that will help us too in the future rocket. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to think of your individual expression, not being brands like certain brands that, that were just products, but actually the consciousness behind actually making different products that become status symbols because they're recycled and they're from a certain place doing certain goods. That's exactly. really wild. I, I just got a pair of Adidas jogging pants made out of completely recyclable plastics. It's uh, I love it. I'm, I'm looking at this it. thing as, how is this possible? That's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Right. I love it. Patagonia made this famous with, uh, yes. as much talked about, I know, in our oh. space, you know, the, the don't buy this jacket campaign where they show their yes. own jacket. They don't buy this. Bring back your old stuff. And they don't just repair their own materials, I their own jackets. That. They'll repair other manufacturers' materials. That is real brand execution. I oh, love those people. Unbelievable company. They've always been that way. And they're headquartered just a, a few miles up the coast from us here. So it's, yeah, we love Wonderful. it. Yeah. Wow. This has been a uh, terrific great time. Enjoyed our time talking. Bruce, thank you very much. Well, hey, what do you think we should all be doing to encourage the people that we touch? Just to have that individual choice? Well, I think that going forwards, COVID has hit all of us. We haven't spoken about this today, but I think one of the negative impacts of COVID is we have all retreated into yeah. our little filter bubbles, our little social group of people with whom we're comfortable. And we've lost a lot of the ability to actually have civic conversations with people we disagree with. And yet that is a muscle that keeps democracy going. And I think, yes, it's about the products that we choose to buy. And yes, we can measure a carbon footprint, re reduce the plastic and so on. But we also have a responsibility to shore up democracy 
and show the way of the future by having those civic conversations outside our filter bubbles, being generous, being present with people we don't necessarily connect with. That's all part of that S dimension, tackling some of the mental health issues. 40% of the workforce in America complains of mental health issues. Real challenges there. And I think that you know, for companies to get people to come back to work physically, it needs to be about more than the fact that there's good food in the fridge, right? We need, so this purpose dimension, I think, is a new revolution. We've gone from the product revolution to the process revolution. Now it's a purpose revolution, and you and your listeners can lead the charge. Yeah, yeah. terrific. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. Hey, it's a pleasure. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.